Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a show for 20-somethings that are trying to figure out adulting. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Each episode, we focus on solving a problem that we will face throughout this defining decade that wasn't covered in the classroom. This could include topics about our career, health, relationships, and money. Let's get into it. In this extraordinary era of pandemic isolation, it makes sense that people are feeling more alone than ever. Although stay-at-home orders and social distancing exasperated loneliness, this trend started way before corona took on a whole new meaning. This rise of loneliness has caught the interest of many health professionals and is now being labeled as the new smoking, which just blows me away that they're taking it this seriously. There must be something here. Cited as being as lethal as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, that has me wondering, what's changed, and more importantly, what can we do about it? Sharing his insights today is Michael Bauman, who is a loneliness entrepreneur coach and the host of the Success Engineering Podcast, which has rave reviews by my standard. Honestly, season one, so worth checking out. Michael uses his knowledge of the neuroscience around loneliness and social connection, along with his personal experience feeling isolated as a business owner himself to help entrepreneurs feel like they are not alone. In this episode, Michael shares why social connection is biologically so important, the factors that have led to an increase in feeling isolated, and actions that we can take to begin overcoming loneliness. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the Tony Robbins Certified Success Coach, World Traveler, and most importantly by his standards, father of two, Michael Bauman. Michael, welcome to the podcast, man. Uh, I'm so excited. A lot of our conversation today is got to center around loneliness and particularly why we are lonely and what we can do if we can do anything about it. So I think to lay some context around the discussion we're going to have today, I'd love to start with a survey that you were mentioning to me in our pre-call. And that's about close friends and how many people have close friends that they can discuss important matters with. Can you kind of give us the shape of that survey and then Tell us a little bit of what that survey says about where we're going with loneliness in this world. Yeah. So loneliness is a really like interesting thing. One, it's something that like we all feel um, at different periods in our life. We all feel a certain level of loneliness and we can get into kind of the neuroscientists behind that. But to answer your question, they did, they did a really large demographic study um, back in 1985 and they were looking at basically classifying how many people you would consider confidants. So people that you can share close personal information with. And back in 1985, it was three people. And they did another follow-up study of that in 2004. And the number actually dropped from three people down to actually one. Um, The average number of people that people would say that they could share really personal things with was one. And I I wish I had data for what it is right now, because I'd actually be really curious about how it's shifted with COVID and everything like that. But the other aspect of those surveys, too, is they also look some at more recent ones. There was one done in 2010 looked at not only like, can you share with somebody, but follow up question of going can, can, would this friend also provide a substantial monetary gift to you if you are in need, or also like maybe let you crash on their couch, like some significant kind of non-monetary investment. And they found that even those people that people said that they could confide in, they didn't know whether they would necessarily provide that support if they really needed it. So both of those things kind of give the backdrop for 
that isolation and stuff that we are going through. And then you just throw on top of that, obviously, all of COVID and you have the, the situation where we're at right now. So in your eyes, do you feel like that survey is a good indicator of loneliness in general? Do we need to have these deep personal connections or is it okay to have a little bit more shallow connections? Because I run into lots of people all day long. Um, does that mean I would be lonely or you know, can you give a little bit more shape or definition to what loneliness really feels like? Yeah, so that's a you bring up a really important point. And so when you look at the research around loneliness, when you look at it, there's actually it's a 48%. And just for the sake of the conversation, we can say 50. So basically around a 50% of the feeling you have of loneliness is actually genetically predetermined. Mm. So some people have a higher sensitivity to disconnection, social disconnection than others. And we, we see it, right? So there's some people that, you know, they need to be surrounded by their aunts and uncles and grandparents, and they all live right on the same street. And, you know, they never go out of their hometown. You know, if they move to the city over, they're like, I am so alone, right? And then you have people, you know, potentially like me or, you know, other people that are like all the way across the ocean, right? So I live in China. Um, and you have that, that difference in terms of sensitivity. And one, I point that out for compassion's sake. So to realize that what might not be a big deal for you might actually be very painful and very sensitive for somebody else. So to realize that like maybe a minor quote unquote thing that makes, you're like, that's not a big deal, right? You'll see them next week, right? But for them, it might actually feel like a more of a big deal because they might be more sensitive. So there's, and there's different types of interaction. There's also, if you're going to classify, the research is based on how we define ourselves. So if I define myself, there's three ways I can do it. One of it is going, you know, I'm this tall, I have brown hair, I have this color eyes, I like doing these sports, whatever, right? So it's a very intimate personal definition of self. But I can also define myself in terms of maybe, you know, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a coworker, you know, that that net that kind of goes a little bit farther out. And then you can define yourself in terms of a collective identity. So going like, you know, I'm American or I'm from this country or I'm a part of, you know, I represent this certain sports team, right? That's a, that's a collective sense of self, but it also shapes how we experience loneliness. So we can look at those areas of connection or disconnection. So if you look at loneliness in terms of your intimate personal connection. So that whether it's like your spouse, like you can, you know, be married and you should be quote unquote, not lonely, but we can feel so isolated and lonely, even in a marriage, right. Or with your friends, right. Or collectively with COVID, especially you can look at, oh, I had all of these groups that are a part of, and these identities that I was a part of that are now lost. So that might be an issue where I can look at how can I help meet my social connection needs in terms of groups as well. So there's different ways you can kind of classify it. And I appreciate you asking that question. So I think one moment in your time that you might've experienced some loneliness was whenever you were actually going back to China during what seemed like this crazy episode of bouncing around during COVID and just trying to figure out things that were going to happen. And then you got to China you had this 14 day quarantine. You didn't give us a whole lot in your podcast, but I heard one of your episodes <laughs> that like you were going a little bit crazy. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And if you can tie it into loneliness, that'd be great. 
Yeah. I mean, we all have, you know, the stories around what was going on, you know, at that period of time when COVID was like, you know, expanding, but then, you know, obviously now it's not something that's, you know, we bookmarked and it's finished. So for us, we, we were kind of, it's like that spy movie, right? Like the alarms are sounding, the doors closing, like we're like sliding under the door. Basically we left, we were in, fortunately we, we were taking a vacation in Bali. I know jealous, but that was ages ago. <laughs> so we're in Bali. We go back to the U S and we're visiting with our family and everything. Everything's totally fine. We're going to museums. Everything's fine. We fly out of Toronto in Canada. The next day we fly out on a Sunday, the next day, Canada completely closed. We fly into China and that next week, China completely locked all of its borders. And then we have, you know, this 14 day quarantine and I mean, just in general, right? That was such a shock to the the world as a whole. And the loss of so many, like we talked about the social connections, the social groups, whether it's your kid being able to go to school, whether it's you being able to go to work and just chat with coworkers, you know? So I definitely had that, right? Well, I mean, it's more so like, not a, on a loneliness as much as like my four-year-old is like driving me crazy because I can't leave the house for like two weeks. Um, so there's definitely that aspect, but I would say a bigger aspect of loneliness is living overseas in a transient environment. So you have these people that might be in your life for one year or two years, and then it's just this revolving door where they're going on to the next thing or doing whatever. And that can be very difficult um, in terms of wanting to invest in these people and, you know, the reciprocal relationship that it, that entails. Interesting. How do you get over that? Cause I actually experienced that similar feeling. So I was living in St. Louis, moved to San Diego and knew San Diego was just going to be a temporary stop for me. San Diego as a whole is pretty transient as well, at least in the young community. There's a lot of older people that have been in, I would say the town for a long time, but most of the young people are here for a couple of years and they're bouncing out somewhere else. Um, I realized I didn't embed or put a lot of energy into deep relationships because of exactly what you're talking about. And I actually, whenever I moved here to Austin now currently, wanted to take a step back from that and realize that was the wrong approach. Even if I was going to be here for only one or two or three years, I really did want to invest in relationships and feel like I had close friends. So have you changed your mind on that? Or is it still something that you struggle with today living in China? It's definitely a struggle just because of the, the environment that we're in, but, and it also, this is another thing where it depends on the, the length of the stay and it depends on the individual. Sure. So you might go like, it is totally not worth it. And that's totally fine. And you, you know, you have the period of life where you move to a different spot and you just, you know, make the most of it and, and move on. Right. Um, I found that this actually happens a lot of times, you know, so I grew up in Papua New Guinea I moved back to the States and I had friends that I even went to university and college with that um, struggled a lot more with this issue of loneliness because they were in a spot and they were only thinking about the spot where they came from. So they're trying to hold on to all the connections that they had, the language and stuff where they came from, and they never really invested where they were. So it's, it's really important to invest where you are, but it's also important to realize the constraints that are placed around that. And there's different ways to approach it. So I'll give you a couple like internal solutions for it and a couple external solutions for it. So what people don't realize, there's a lot of research around the negative effects of loneliness. They, they describe it as the, the new smoking, quote unquote. Yeah. So there's research that shows it is actually more detrimental 
to live in a state, a subjective feeling of loneliness, and we'll classify that in a little bit, the subjective feeling of loneliness over an extended period of time that it is for you know being overweight, for smoking, for high blood pressure, all these things that we typically associate with our health. So what that, what that does is it's the subjective versus the objective feeling of loneliness. So you can actually objectively be alone and not have all the negative health effects of it because you don't feel like you're alone. You can be surrounded by people and actually feel alone. And that subjective feeling of loneliness over the long term is what is detrimental. So you can actually change your subjective feeling of loneliness internally. It's actually a state of mind. And it's difficult because it starts to distort your perceptions of other people, but you can change it internally. So one way to do that, and this is especially important coming up into the holiday season. So if people are quarantined, if people are isolated from their families, you can actually just sit down, you know, whatever you do to relax, whether that's, you know, you have any training and meditation, focusing on your breath, you can do that, or just sit there and relax and picture all of your friends, all of the people that are close to you, maybe it's family, maybe it's coaches, maybe it's mentors, maybe they're gathering around you, maybe they're giving you a hug, maybe they're patting on the back, giving you a high five, affirming you, and basically just saying like, you're doing an awesome job, like you're, you're incredible, we really, really care about you, or looking at all of the positive memories that you have associated with these people. So maybe it's the holiday season, maybe it's Christmas and you have these wonderful times with your family or wonderful times with friends, whatever it is. And you can just sit there and you can create the feeling of love and connection that actually shifts that subjective feeling of loneliness without ever interacting with somebody else. So you take that feeling and basically just kind of receive it into yourself. Because the aspect of like, it's actually, we need to feel loved. We can be surrounded by these people, but we need to feel loved. So that's one way to do it. And another way internally is to actually look at this kind of cognitive behavioral therapy. So how do we use our thoughts to change our emotions? And what this looks like is, you know, maybe you have a breakup with somebody that, you know, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, whatever it is, and it really, really hurts you. And in your mind, you say, I'm going to be alone forever. Cognitive behavioral therapy is examining that negative belief. So you look at the, what happened, what was the event? You can do this on a paper, right? One column can be like what actually happened. The middle column can be what negative belief that you had based on that. And then the third column can actually be what is the consequence of that negative belief? So if I believe now in my head that I'll be alone forever, what is the tangible consequence of this? And then you look at it like a lawyer, like you're going, how can I examine the hard evidence for this belief? you know, that I will be alone forever. And then also the hard evidence that would disprove this. Are there times where you haven't been alone and you felt connected? And that's a way that you can use your brain, again, your cognition to change your subjective feeling of loneliness. And then externally, you, I would say, I love making things like not complicated, right? So I'm talking about all these like neuroscience and whatever, but I like as a coach, basically breaking it down to tiny little things that you can do. So one, one of the big things is, just trying to slightly upgrade every one of your social interactions. So first examine in yourself, when you are on social media, when you finish that, do you feel more connected to the people after you finish? Maybe yes and maybe no. It depends, it depends on the platform and it probably depends on the person. But I would say a lot of them, I don't know whether you'd feel more connected to the people. So you can go, how can I take these, these connections and maybe upgrade them just slightly? Like if I leave a like normally for somebody, maybe I just write a little comment. 
if you normally comment, maybe you actually write them a message on social media, or if you send a text, maybe you're doing a call, maybe you're doing a video call. And we get that idea. How can I just take these interactions I have and just slightly upgrade them in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming? And then the other thing, then this is incredibly powerful because loneliness turns us inward. It's like this fundamental like hunger that we have. We want people to see us, to th them to let like, to know that we matter for them to say like you belong. But sometimes to get that need met, we have to like externally reach out a little bit first. Mm -hmm. And what that looks like is how can you shift all your thoughts from like what's going on inside of you to going, how can I be genuinely curious about whatever person I'm interacting with in front of me? Like, how can I actually be like super curious about their life? And then also like curious about what they may be going through and the struggles they may be having. And just that shift in perspective can start to shift your perception of loneliness. So that's just a couple of things internally and externally that you can do to start to, to shift that feeling. Yeah. I like both of those recommendations. It can be challenging because you're always playing this game in player one and um, it's hard to get out of your own perspective, but putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and trying to, you know, take their feelings in can really help with that social connection. And you actually mentioned um, an, another model or study around um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I think everybody really understands that fundamentally. So I don't think we need to go too deep into that. But you actually think, or um, I believe it was Matthew Liberman um, did yeah. a study against this, that uh, Maslow might have gotten something wrong with his hierarchy. So I think this ties in really well with that need for social connection. And even actually what you were talking about with um, loneliness is the new cancer as well, that it's just as important as some of these other fundamental things like your health and your shelter and all these things. So why don't you go into that a little bit and explain why Maslow might be wrong? Yeah, yeah. And I would kind of clarify as not Maslow necessarily being wrong, because even the <laughs> classification we have of the pyramid, he didn't necessarily describe it as that. So that's sure. the way we typically view it. And it is a, in some ways, helpful way to view it. So for people that don't know, basically, Maslow has this hierarchy of needs, and it's typically depicted as a pyramid. So at the base, you have your basic like physiological needs. So your need for like food, shelter, water, that kind of thing. Right above that, you have safety needs. So feeling safe and COVID just dropped a bomb in terms of that. And then above that, it had, you know, connection needs, belonging needs. Then we have self-esteem and self-actualization. But this researcher, Matthew, Matthew Lieberman, that you mentioned, he's a phenomenal book called Social. He argues that our need to connect with other people is potentially more fundamental than our need for food and water. And how he justifies this, and this is also the basis for a very prominent theory in psychology called attachment theory. So it developed, and some of the listeners maybe even be, uh, have heard about this. You have- We just covered studying, it, actually. <laughs> oh, great. So rhesus yeah. monkeys, you have the wireframe, you have the, the one that you know, is all cute and cuddly, and one provides food, the wireframe monkey, and the other one just provides the comfort and the snuggling, the, yep. the connection. And they found that it would go to this side for food and then just snuggle with the wire, the, the, the cuddly one most of the time. And if it didn't have that, you had a lot of psychological things that start to be detrimental according to that. And so 
the reason that this guy argues that social connection is more fundamental of food and water is if you don't have that connection with some sort of figure in your infancy, when you're completely helpless, you won't get the food and water and you won't be able to survive. So we're hardwired for this in our brain. And you actually see it in scans of your brain when they look at when you're in physical pain compared to when you're in social pain, when you have social rejection. It lights up almost the exact same neural network in your brain between social pain and physical pain. And you'll see this in our language. Like when you talk about, oh, that person broke my heart. Mm. Like it's a, it's a tangible physical, like we try to use language to describe a pain that we're actually feeling. That person broke my heart. I have a heart ache. Same as I have a headache, right? A stomach ache. I have a heart ache. Like my heart feels in pain. And we all know the saying like sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we all know that it's the words that like you're struggling with your whole life potentially of these traumas and stuff that have happened and you might've broken your bone and you get healed with it. But we don't treat the pain that we feel for loneliness in a similar way. It's for every fundamental need you have, you have a fundamental pain that's trying to tell you this needs to be met. And so one, I want to say that to just, again, give yourself compassion. Like it, we're all going through a incredibly rough time. It's totally normal to feel lonely and just be compassionate with yourself. This is actually a fundamental need that you have and looking at ways that you can meet that is, it is important for sure. So fascinating with the language aspect to that. I heard you say that uh, maybe it was you and I, whenever we were talking or it could have been on one of your podcasts as well, but that just made sense to me a lot. And I guess to extrapolate that out too, that is kind of that whole reason why loneliness might be as dangerous as smoking cigarettes as well. Like without it, like <laughs> so many funnel things are going to, are going to fall apart in our life. And if you look back, you know, you take it back thousands of years or whatever, or you even look at the, you know, National Geographic documentaries, like which animal is the one that gets eaten? Like it's the one that gets separated from the yeah. pack. It gets separated <laughs> from the herd. You know what I mean? And so fundamentally you feel like when you feel socially dis disconnected, you actually feel insecure and not safe. Like that's mm. the feeling of what it is. And there's a difference. It's even d interesting to make a distinction between acute lo loneliness and then chronic loneliness. So acute loneliness, there's a reason why we feel that it actually makes us more attuned to social signals of the people around us and more likely to connect with others, which is interesting because we think of loneliness as a disconnect. It actually goes, no, I'm more, I'm more attuned to their signals. You know, I'm trying to be more pleasing with other people so that I can restore my standing in this social group. So I don't get eaten by a predator if you take it to the fundamental level. And then the problem comes is when it's a long-term thing, when it's a long-term thing, then it starts messing with our perceptions of other people. We start perceiving them, even if their ac actions are you know, benign or even positive, we start perceiving it as more negative. And it gets into this downward spiral after that point. And that's where you have to get out of that distortion of your head um, in terms of focusing on other people, which Again, I'm not going to lie. It's not easy. Um, and it's not something that you can just wave a magic wand at. It's, it's a challenge for sure. For sure. So that initial study that we talked about, whenever we first kicked off this conversation, it was moving from three people down to one person. I think you said 1985 was the initial study. And then 2004 was the second study. 
I'm assuming social media nowadays is driving some of this loneliness and it's often quoted or, or cited as, as one of the major factors, but what else do you think if you had to theorize happened in between 1985 and 2004 and now what, what is whatever it stands today? Yeah. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of times, even just in coaching in general, if you're looking at behavioral change, one of the things, an important area to start with is just looking at how can, how is the environment actually contributing to my state of being? And then also on the positive side, how can I just shape the environment to help me be as successful as possible with what I'm doing? And if you look at just the history and you know this is in the west there's different cultures that have such a higher value on connect connectedness and relationships and familiar familial structure and things like that but in the in the us you can see you know before there was a very collective culture and you'll see this in a lot of different cultures um you know the pioneers things like that everybody came together they're all working together you know they're building the barns together they have you know dances together celebrations together you know even the trade store idea you know like i'm trading a good for another good you know that kind of idea and a lot at least in the in the west has shifted to an individual kind of mentality right so we we graduate from college. And then, you know, the first thing we need to do is like, now we need to get a house on our own. We need to separate, you know, from our parents. And then in those houses, we divide up all these little rooms and, you know, then your kids are maybe spending their time in their room. And then you wall your little, you put a little fence around your house. So like, even though you're beside these neighbors, you don't necessarily see these neighbors um, very much, you know, you get in your car and then you go to work and you come back. Um, so there's this aspect of the environment that is actually constrained or potentially precipitated the feeling of, of loneliness. And, it, and it's a challenge, right? If you're commuting, you know, 30 minutes or more to where your work is, then there's this idea of like, you kind of interact with the people at work, but you're not necessarily going to interact with them potentially outside of work. So you have like your work friends that aren't really your friends. And then you have your home friends that sometimes might be your friends, you know? So that, that aspect of environment definitely can contribute to it. And you can ask the question of going like, are there ways that I can shape the environment to make connection easier? Mm -hmm. And one thing, even with that, anything that's important in our life, for a lot of people, we schedule it, we put it in the calendar. Like if we have our kid's birthday or a spouse's birthday or whatever it is, we say, this is the day we put it in our calendar. Don't forget this, right? Like you have a work deadline, you need to do this. Potentially even doing that with social relationships and it sounds structured, but sometimes that structure allows a consistent connection that you wouldn't get in the busyness of everybody's life. Cause you make that justification of going, well, you know, they're busy. I don't know when we can hang out. I don't know when we can go over and then it ne never ends up happening. So just going, potentially looking at like, who would be the one person that I would potentially want to really strengthen a feeling of connection with and going, maybe we make this more consistent. Maybe it's like an every week thing. We grab coffee if you can, or do a zoom or, you know, whatever, or maybe it's every other week or some idea that you can have to intentionally strengthen those connections. Yeah. I love that thought. Um, I'm a calendar person myself as well. So if somebody wants to get a hold of me or, or have some kind of reoccurring thing, it's gotta be on my calendar. And I really kind of look at it from a Monday perspective and usually book out rest the rest of my week. And I find myself saying no, typically on same day, um, invites, but once again, if you get me a week out, I'm, I'm more than happy to set aside time. And I've found very similar to what you were just talking there, scheduling some, some time for the people that are important to me. My little brother and I talk 
every weekend pretty much on Sundays. And he knows call me between this time and that time. Well, actually I call him in between waking up and when football starts. So I have a really small window <laughs> to catch him, but it's perfect. Uh, and we know each other, each other's schedule and that we can reach out and get connected at that certain time. Um, and that's really important to us. So I'd like that piece. You also brought up cultural differences too. You can be a fat, you could bring some really fascinating perspective into this because you spent um, some time in the States and now you're living in China as well. So what does China do differently um, around uh, loneliness or, or just the structure in general that might lead their environment to be a little less lonely? Because I'm assuming they don't have picket fences and uh, this major commute and, you know, get away from mom and dad. It seems like there may be a lot like the family tie is, is a lot more connected. Yes, potentially. There's a lot of a lot of caveats to that. I, I would I would start with I would start with potentially in Papua New Guinea. So Papua New Guinea is an, an island culture, you know, I'll kind of know that relaxed like Jamaica, you know, kind of feel right. And that's that's Papua New Guinea. They do have a lot stronger connection with family um, in general. And this isn't across the board. They are they are they are happier. Um, they're just, you know, they have a lot less. They're oftentimes very, very poor, but they have these wonderful, wonderful families, wonderful tribal kind of connections for the most part. <laughs> and sometimes they try to kill each other, <laughs> but that's anybody in the world, right? Um, so, you know, you have, you have that dynamic. And, and is that south it, of Australia? It's, south? it's north. So north, it's, north. it's right, oh, it's on the north it's right side. above Australia. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then in the U.S., and this is a massive overgeneralization because the U.S. represents so many different demographics, so many different people. You know, even if you take New York City, right, it's just so many different people there. And you'll see Italians that have a lot more social connection and Hispanics typically, you know, even in the, you know, the black community, a lot more relational connection. Um, potentially than, you know, people who are, are white or Caucasian. Um, and again, massive overgeneralizations here. And then when you look at China, what you're talking about, it, it's definitely the, the needs of the individual subsumed to the needs of the, the collective. So, you know, the, the national needs, it's a very like, this is, this is the way it is. This is the, what we do. But I, I wouldn't say that they're less lonely. There, there's actually, I would say probably more, if you're looking at upper echelon and then even in just in general, because of the vast population size, the performance pressure on kids going through schools is so much. And because there's so many people, if you fall behind, it's very difficult to have individual help and stuff that's able to, to get you back on track, you know, in that regard. And then because also there's so many people, there's a, such a high demand for, you know, jobs. And if you're not able to get certain jobs, you end up falling into the lower rung of society and it might be like a, a you know street sweeper cleaner or just construction workers and you know they they work in crazy hours and a lot of times they're in these little like just cubicle kind of things where they just go to the construction site they live there they don't see their family at all um, so there is definitely you're, you're talking about stratification of society and there's definitely tons of loneliness there but at the same time there is, you know, a lot of the grandparents are taking care of the grandkids, uh, which they, they won't necessarily see as much in the States. Like they're usually living in the same apartment, taking care of the, the grandkids. Um, but then you have differences in terms of marriage and the societal structure and how it views that as well. So there can be more loneliness in that because it's more of a social construct. Again, overgeneralizations here. But 
there's a lot, you know, you can kind of unpack a lot when it comes to the big systemic, you know, environment, environmental factors that affect loneliness. So why did you end up moving to China? You understand that you isolated yourself from so many people that you knew just to bring yourself to this like foreign area. I assume you're learning Mandarin, but you probably didn't know Mandarin going there. So what, what was the impetus behind uh, moving to China? Yeah, so both, both me and my wife had actually grown up overseas and we were back in the States and we did that for four years after, after college. Um, but we, we both really, really value other people and other cultures. And we were like, well, let's, let's give it a shot. And the worst that can happen is, you know, maybe it's a terrible year and it was just awful. And we come back and then you just plug back into what, what you're doing. But it actually has been just an incredible, it was an incredible decision for our family. And even in terms of our, like our kids, the ability to be able to give them knowing Mandarin, like if they graduate high school and all they know is English and Mandarin, that's a phenomenal yeah. gift to be able to give them, but also the gift of understanding different perspectives. Like it is so important to realize that there's different people in the world and they think differently than you. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, there's a lot of things that might be good about it. And once you've had these experiences in different locations and with different cultures, you can kind of say, I like this about this culture. I don't like this about that culture. And you can kind of like amalgamate the things that you want. You're like, this is a beautiful thing about this culture, a beautiful thing about this culture. And you can ignore the things that you're like, mm, not so great. And you can kind of create the family and, you know, the values or whatever it is that you want to have in terms of the life that you want to live. So back to the performance culture piece to it as well. Where do you stand on that? You have two kids. Um, I probably like a four and a two-year-old at this point in time or roughly close, around yeah, the four and one. one and a half. Okay. Okay. You see the strain that some of this performance culture has on people. Where do you fall on it? I am more, I had a very fast, so I have a, a podcast as well called Success Engineering. And I had a super fascinating guest on her name's uh, Jessica Joel Alexander. And she wrote, um, the Danish way of parenting. And it's it's the most sold parenting book of all time. So basically she looked at it and goes, Denmark has been rated in the top three in terms of happiness for the last 30 years. And she's like, why is that? And her, her argument is basically it's because of how they parent their kids. And the emphasis on play is so much higher. It was fascinating when she was talking to a school administrator, they don't give awards around academics. They don't give awards around sports. They don't give awards for any of that trophies for any of that. The basically the, the supervisor was said, the only award you might get is one for being a good friend. And the emphasis they have on, they teach classes like every week, the class will meet and they will basically share how they're feeling with each other and learn how to do that well. They have classes on teaching people how to comfort somebody else when they're hurting, right? All the things that you're like, this is amazing wow. and I wish I knew this, right? And then, then actually for a while, it, it's a little bit different now, but for a while they didn't even have their kids go to school until seven years old. Um, so the focus is so much more on play and there's tons of research around play and the benefit that it has. And in a lot of the cultures, um, we have all of this wealth and GDP and stuff in, in the US, and then we rank quite low in terms of happiness in comparison with other countries. And a lot of it you know, can be, can be that we lose the aspect of unstructured play. We have a lot of sports play and there's benefits to that, but there's also tremendous benefits to just letting your kids be kids. So 
I lean on the side of that. You know, I know my kids will do great and, you know, I can teach them and things like that. I have confidence in them and I have confidence in myself, but I'm like, okay, how can I, how can I help them play as much as possible when they come home from school? Like my four-year-old, like, let's just play the rest of the time. Um, Cause he had all this school already, you know? So that's kind of where, where I lean, but again, it's a variegated kind of question. Yeah. Fair. I'm assuming you also are learning to be a parent through probably some traditional means similar to, I, I think a lot of people miss the fact that you can, you can, you know, read books and get educated on, on some ways to become a better parent and knowing you, I'm guessing you've done at least a little bit of that. <laughs> Anything else you're talking to 20 somethings. Um, so soon to be new parents, probably anything else that you learned through raising two young kids or kind of right in the midst of it right now that might be good information to share? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Check out that check out that book, um, The Danish Way of Parenting. It is really, really great. The, the other just parenting person who's phenomenal, his name is Daniel Siegel or Spiegel. Um, and he wrote, he's wrote a lot, like no drama discipline. He wrote The Whole Brain Child, um, your, your Child from the Inside Out. Basically looking at the stages of development of your kids from a neurological perspective. And so for instance, right? Your prefrontal cortex, the one that's responsible for you having executive control, being able to basically subsume your amygdala and your emotional limbic system and all that to say like, okay, hey, I'm going to delay self-gratification. That doesn't fully develop until you're six. So when we're asking our kids to stop whatever behavior that's bothering us, being angry or whining or whatever, they don't actually physiologically have the ability fully developed to do that yet. So instead of treating emotions as bad things, and this is important for us as well, it's actually like, just like the, some of those fundamental needs and those pains, emotions are very intricate system of our body letting us know there's something that we actually need here. And so looking when you're, when your kid is crying and having these meltdowns, and this is way easier said than done, and yeah. it's not something I do perfectly because it is a challenge. Um, but like actually what they're wanting, because if you look at how a baby develops, they cry when they need something and they get their need met because they don't have verbal language. It's how they communicate. I need something. Right. But then the minute they turn two years old or three years old, when they cry, we're like, no, like you're old enough now to not realize that they are still, and we do it as people too. Like we, we anger just subsumes sadness and fear. A lot of times we actually want people to connect with us, but what we're pushing, we're pushing them away through our anger, but inside we're going, I really want you to connect with me. Like I'm scared and I'm alone. Um, and the same with the kids, like they don't know how to process it and verbally do it. So they're doing this meltdown and it's more important to actually go and give them a hug than it is to go like, no, like you should not be doing that right now. Like, you, you know, better than that right? You give them a hug, you calm it down first. Because even in terms of us, when we get emotionally agitated, it activates a fight or flight system. We have a sympathetic nervous system. Our heart rate goes up. Our blood pressure goes up. It's the same system as if a tiger's jumping through the wall. Like I'm like, I am either all of our blood goes to our muscles and we're going, I'm going to punch it in the face or I'm going to run away. Right. And there's a couple other responses, but that's one of it. Same thing happens in socially. We feel a social threat and we go, you know, we don't, our, the blood is not pumping to our prefrontal cortex where we're making logical, rational decisions. So you need to actually calm down to the point where then, oh, and you do this, Ken, by asking questions, right? You can do it with your kids as well. It allows the blood to start pumping back to your cortex and go, 
oh, now let me actually think about this. So that's a little tidbit, but yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of parenting people that have a ton of good things to say on that. I can tell you absolutely love being a dad. So super stoked for you. <laughs> Something else I can tell you have a lot of passion around as well is your podcast and really just um, exploring this concept of success. So let's get into a little bit of your podcast and the impetus behind it. Seemed like it was this light bulb moment for you. Um, this gatherings of the Titans, there was this question that was asked. So can you tee up that and, and how that led to you um, really going down this path of success? Yeah, I've been fascinated with the idea of success and how we define it for quite a while now. And as you mentioned, it, it really started when I read Start With Why by Simon Sinek. And there's a part of it, there's these multimillionaire CEOs, they go to MIT, there's a gathering of the Titans. And the presenter basically asked this audience goes, how many of you have achieved your financial goals? And 80% of this room puts their hands up. I mean, they probably, a lot of them don't have to work for another day in their whole life. And the speaker follows it up with how many of you feel like a success hmm. and 80% of this room that had their hands up, put it back down. And that story just like really kind of solidified it. So we know that like money doesn't buy us happiness or it does up to a certain point if you actually know the research, like research and stuff on it. But um, we kind of know that in theory, but that story is like, if anybody should have felt like a success, it was these people and they didn't feel like a success. So what we're looking at is not actually the appearance of success. We're looking at how can I feel like a successful father? How can I feel like a successful spouse or partner? How can I feel like a success in terms of my, my wealth? How can I feel like a success? I can be on the cover of Vogue and GQ and actually hate my body, right? How can I feel like a success in terms of my body? And asking that question through some of those lenses of emotional health and mental health and physical and relational and financial. I know you cover a lot of these things on your podcast, asking that question. And those are phenomenal questions to ask. There's kind of different layers of success. So you have the appearance of success. Then you have the feeling of success in these different areas. And that feeling is dictated by the stories and the identities that we tell around that. And that's actually shifting an identity. How can I have an identity around being wealthy or being healthy? Like, what does that even look like? What are the stories that I'm telling myself that are dictating how I'm feeling? But then underneath that, once you kind of strip that back, and it's a process, we construct these stories and we deconstruct them throughout our lives. But underneath that, you have this aspect of presence. Like, what I found, if I was kind of pushed to shove, asked to define success, a lot of it would come down to how can I be more present in my day? Like, you know, as cliche as it sounds, this is, this is all we got and I can't miss it. Like, and there's a phenomenal quote um, by Maria, Maria Popova, who wrote the brain pickings. Um, it just changed the name to Marginalian or something, but um, she's phenomenal. Check her out. She said, I stopped measuring my days by degrees of productivity, and I started experiencing them by degrees of presence. Hmm. And that to me is how you can live a life without regrets is if and that's the biggest gift I could give myself. It's the biggest gift. I feel like I could give my wife, my kids is like, if I am present with you and they know that when I'm with them, I'm hundred percent present. There's no better gift that I could give 
than that. And that is not easy to do. And I'm a work in progress, just like anybody else. Um, but that's definitely a very high value for me. And it's something that I, I strive to work towards doing more on a daily basis. Yeah, man, I resonated a lot with that. I really enjoyed the podcast for people that are interested resonating with some of the things you said as well. I'd go check out Success Engineering. Um, pretty easy to find, I think, on all podcast players. Um, yeah. Season one, you really help people define what it would feel like for them to be successful. And then you do a good job of sharing the things or the, the blueprints for um, uh, getting success. And then I love it. You follow that up with three seasons of like awesome interviews with like just phenomenal people. You teased out a few already. So, so worth checking out anywhere else that you'd like to point people if they want to connect or learn more about you. Yeah. I mean, my, my website, successengineering.org. And then at the start of the year, if you are interested, so I'm a, I'm a Tony Robbins certified success coach as well. Um, focusing like on loneliness, but, you know, kind of do the whole, the whole range of things. So if you're interested in, in working with me or just checking out, you know, what I do, you can definitely go to the, the website, successengineering.org. And I think you got um, a couple free PDFs out there as well. If, if people want to go grab those. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Michael, um, my final question for you, if you had the opportunity to teach a 16 week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? Yeah, uh, I would definitely, I would definitely teach it around habits. So I think habits are super fascinating. There was a study done by Duke University that looked at what percentage of our day do we spend in habits, which is essentially they defined as behaviors you do without thinking about it. And that study found that around 40% of your day is automatic behaviors that you do, both good and bad. And if you can understand how to hack, quote unquote, hack these habits, um, you can implement anything. They, they, I have what there's called meta skills, right? There's skills that if you can learn them, it doesn't matter what the input is, you can achieve incredible outputs. And habits is one of those things. Motivation is one of those things. Like learning is one of those things. Like if you can optimize your learning, it doesn't matter what input you have, you know, the output is phenomenal. So definitely around habits. Um, I am very passionate about, about that, how that works. And even kind of, again, the neuroscience behind it. What would that class look like? If I picked up the syllabus, what would I expect? Um, uh, class, class to class is their homework. Is this hands-on assignments? Is this deep studies? What, what would you prefer if somebody took that class? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you'd be implementing habits. So there, there's, there are also habits around happiness. They're, they're looked at, you know, again, 50% of our happiness is genetically predetermined. We have 10% has to do with our income levels, our jobs, things like that. The other 40% is our daily intentional activities. So activities around social connection, around coping with stress, around exercise, diet, sleep, you know, meditation, you know, savoring the present moment, setting goals. Those are all like on that list. So what it would look like is creating in this eight week period of time or a 16 week period of time, probably eight different habits. And this would be individual for the people that feel like which ones are the biggest, biggest bang for your buck that you'd want to implement. And then looking at how can you actually implement that consistently? So one of the things is 
uh, there's a phenomenal, phenomenal book again, that I'd recommend tiny habits by BJ Fogg. And then, you know, a lot of people know atomic habits, James clear. It's another super good power of habit. Um, Charles Duhigg. Um, those are all really, really good, but tiny habits. I love tiny habits because he'll break it down. You look at your habits. It occurs because you have to have motivation, ability, and a prompt. And if you can understand, if we can basically take motivation out of the equation to make it so easy, super simple to do, then you have a prompt that's anchored into your life. So it's like brushing your teeth, right? After I brush my teeth, I will do this. And then you have an ability to do that and you can analyze that and you bake it into your life with like celebrating it. So you're activating your pleasure system, your dopamine response, which wires it into your brain you'll do far better at implementing these habits. Um, and that's just like a tip of the iceberg in terms of what, what that actually looks like. But yeah, I'm also passionate about that. <laughs> you are passionate. If people want to check it out, like I said, go binge your podcast. It is unbelievable. If you want to learn things like habit stacking and bundling and this behavior equals map, you talk and you break those down so succinctly in your podcast. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming on and sharing so much of your wisdom. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation today, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes. If you want to connect with me, send me a message on Instagram. I'm at Justin Lee Peters. You can find show notes with links to everything we discussed today at justinpeters.co. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimeke. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in.